Welcome to The God Solution, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst, and I'm in the studio today with a couple students, Ariana and Caleb. Hi, I'm Ariana. What's up? I'm Caleb. And Ariana and Caleb are here because they recently were assigned a book very critical of the New Testament and critical of evangelical Christianity, and a book that seems to put itself out there as the only legitimate option in this field. Unfortunately, the author of that book has no credentials to write on this subject. He's not a scholar in this field, and he's a very one-sided perspective in this field. So today we have an incredible opportunity to interview Dr. Daryl Bach of Dallas Theological Seminary, one of the true scholars in this field, about some of the things in that book, and many other different topics as well. But before we get to that, Ariana and Caleb, tell me a little bit about how this unfolded. Yeah, um, at the beginning of this year, I started out in a world civilizations class where we learned about various different topics. Um, one of the books that was assigned was Zella, The Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth. And... This book really made me question my faith because some of the things that I read in this book kind of made me wonder, is this guy really telling the truth or is he just making this up to go along with what he said? One of the things that uh, came to mind whenever I was reading this book, I was asking myself these questions like, well, Oslan discredits an eyewitness account of Jesus whenever 2,000 years later he's supposed to expect us to believe his account. There's quite a few questions like that that pop up nervously throughout Zealot that uh, I thought were kind of contradictions within just the way he wrote the book. So just wanted to get more questions about that answered. And so you guys and some of the other students in the class said, well, Nate, what do you think about this book? And honestly, I had not a clue. <laughs> I'd never read it. And I've done a lot of investigation in this field and read some of the biggest critics and definitely read a whole lot of the scholars that are rebutting those critics, but I'd never encountered this book, even though it's a New York Times bestseller, apparently. And so when I looked it up, I thought, let's get some true scholars to describe this. When I Googled him and found out that his PhD was in sociology, not in the relevant fields, and when I found out that he's a creative writing professor, I, I literally laughed and I could hardly believe that that somebody who is known for creative writing would be trusted in very creative writing. But anyway, I said, let's get some real scholars and find out what they say. So I messaged Dr. Craig Blomberg, who's been on the show numerous times, and I asked him about it, and he'd written a response, so I gave you guys his response. And then I also found a response by Dr. Daryl Bach and uh, gave you that response. What did you think about those two scholarly responses that I sent you guys? Yeah, these responses were very helpful, for me at least, in deciphering what is the truth and what I can believe and what is kind of altered to a perspective of another. Yeah, I, I'd agree with Ariana on that. Uh, these articles really do state a lot of fallacies that are uh, in the book Zealot and that are just so prevalent in the way he writes and from the viewpoint that he's actually taking on the very book. 
Yeah. Now, this is something that you guys should always remember for the rest of your lives. When you encounter a doubt, and you will, and this is something that's true to the human condition, no matter what your belief system, no matter what you're thinking about, there will be doubts about it. It's always good to go back and research and find out the true answers. The book of Proverbs puts it this way. It says, the first one seems right until the second one comes and gives a defense. And so it's always that way. We, we hear the first criticism and we go, oh my gosh, it seems so true. But then when we see deeper, there's more to it than that. So I would encourage you to keep doing that, looking into uh, some of the good answers to these things. Now, that being said, we read the articles by Dr. Blomberg and Dr. Bach. This morning, we get to interview Dr. Daryl Bach of Dallas Theological Seminary. You guys excited about this? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, with no further ado, let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Daryl Bach. Dr. Bach has earned international recognition as a Humboldt scholar for his work in Luke and Acts, for his historical Jesus study, for his biblical theology, and his Messianic Jewish ministries. He's also served as the president of the Evangelical Theological Society. He is editor-at-large for Christianity Today. He's on the board of both Chosen People Ministries and Wheaton College. He is a well-known author of over 30 books, and those include books on many different types of themes, but all involving biblical topics. And he's been a New York Times best-selling author in nonfiction. He has contributed articles to leading journals and periodicals, including many secular publications. He has done a variety of media shows, including work with ABC, CNN, Day of Discovery, and John Ankerberg's show. He has blogged on culture and scripture for over seven years. You can read his blogs at DTS, as in Dallas Theological Seminary. That's where a lot of this information is coming from about Dr. Bach. That's where he teaches. So again, dts.edu slash the table. That's one of his blogs, dts.edu slash the table. His other blog is at bible.org. That first one I mentioned also has his podcast. He has been a part of the weekly Texas Faith blog at the Dallas Morning News since its inception. You can find out more about Dr. Daryl Bach at dts.edu on the faculty page. You can read again his blog and podcast at dts.edu slash the table, and you can get his other blog at bible.org. You should also check out some of his books. If you go to amazon.com, you can check out the Daryl Bach page. They have an entire page with 30 of his books right now on amazon.com. So you could go to the Daryl Bach page at amazon.com or just search his name on Amazon and see some of his books. Here are a few of the books that I would suggest you pick up. I would suggest you get Truth in a Culture of Doubt, Engaging Skeptical Challenges to the Bible, which he co-authored with two other authors. I'm reading that one right now and loving it. It just came out about six weeks ago. You could also pick up Who is Jesus? Linking the Historical Jesus with the Christ of Faith, Recovering the Real Lost Gospel, Reclaiming the Gospel as Good News, Jesus According to Scripture, Restoring the Portrait from the Gospels, Studying the Historical Jesus, a Guide to Sources and Methods, Jesus in Context, Background Readings for Gospel Study, and Truth Matters, Confident Faith in a Confusing World. All of those would be great books to pick up by Dr. Daryl Bach, who's going to be with us on the show 
this morning. When we talk to Dr. Bach this morning, of course, we're going to talk about Reza Aslan's Zealot book, which you just heard Caleb and Ariana discussing a minute ago. So we'll talk to him about that. But today, because this is going to be a three-part interview, we're going to discuss some of his prior work. We're going to discuss his treatment of the Da Vinci Code, which we all know is a novel, but for some reason a lot of people took its conspiracy theories as gospel truth. So we're going to talk to him about what's wrong with statements like Jesus was married. What's wrong with the statement that the gospels we have were just cherry-picked from many others by the early church councils? What is wrong with some of those types of statements? And so we'll talk to him about some of that. And this morning, we're even going to begin to get into a little bit of a discussion with him about Bart Ehrman, probably the most famous critic of the Bible today. We've discussed Ehrman and his work many times on this show, and we've talked to many of the world-class scholars that are debating him and rebutting him. And Dr. Daryl Bach has definitely done his share in that field as well. He's debated Ehrman, and he has written on a lot of these topics. And in fact, that newest book that I just mentioned, Truth in a Culture of Doubt, is a response to Ehrman. So we'll talk to him a little bit about Ehrman this morning. Anyway, I hope you're excited for the show. Welcome to The God Solution, Dr. Buck. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm thrilled to be talking with you. Glad to be able to do it. Hey, wonderful. Welcome to The God Solution, Dr. Daryl Buck. It's a pleasure to be here. We are so glad that you're on the air to talk about some important issues today. But before we get into any of that, I would like to know, how did you come to faith in Jesus Christ? Well, uh, it's actually an interesting and involved story. I did not grow up in a Christian home. Uh, I did go to church when I was young. It was, uh, I would say, theologically moderate church. It wasn't wildly liberal, but it wasn't very conservative either. And... Uh, um, but we stopped going when I was about eight years old. My mom got cancer, and uh, that pretty much quashed our church attendance because she was in and out of the hospital on six different surgeries between the time I was eight and 14 before she finally passed away from cancer. And so um, so I had a lot of people share with me through really starting in junior high all the way through high school. And then uh, really a, a roommate I had my freshman year in college who was a Christian was very responsible for living out the Christian life and kind of dealing with my questions, et cetera. And uh, between my freshman and sophomore years, I came to the Lord uh, in college. So that's that's the background. That's definitely pertinent to this setting that we're in today. Yeah, and I also have a question for you. Um, I want to know, how did you pick your career? Well, that's uh, that's an extension of actually the coming to the Lord story. After I came to the Lord, uh, my freshman, my sophomore year at the University of Texas, I, my freshman year was at SMU. Um, I and my roommate started a Bible study, and we started off with six people my sophomore year. And by my senior year, we were in a four-bedroom apartment that literally was packed with people in virtually every room by the time it was done, and I basically led that Bible study. So um, so it was uh, teaching-related uh, experience in college, um, and, uh, and it was just clear um, that what I should be doing. Wow. Um, also, I was wondering, how did you develop an interest in apologetics? Well, that's natural. If you live on a college campus 
uh, and uh, are engaged with what's going on on a college campus uh, and the kinds of doubts and questions that come up in philosophy classes and that kind of thing, I mean, it's a state university, uh, then, and you have a faith, then you're trying to put together what you're hearing in church with what you're hearing in the classroom. And those things don't always mesh. So uh, apologetics is kind of the way to sort your way through all that. That's exactly what we always find in our ministry here at Fort Lewis College. So you've been on the forefront of dealing with numerous cultural challenges to the Christian faith, and I wanted to discuss a few of those this morning, namely the Da Vinci Code. It's kind of old, but you were pretty much the main guy that was rebutting that, and Ehrman's work, and I'm reading a new book that you just uh, put out that's really good on that topic, and then Reza Aslan's Zealot book, which was required reading for several students that are here on the campus this semester. But before we get to those specifically, could you share just a quick summary of why you believe we can trust the Bible? Well, uh, the main reason I think we can trust the Bible is because I think it has a good, um, what I would call, uh, train of transit, a train of traditioning. In other words, this is an oral culture out of a Jewish context. Jewish people are used to passing things along. There was oversight through uh, the apostolic circle and uh, and and I think the unusual nature of the, of the lives of the writers, the risk that they went to about what it is that they preached, all these things lead into the idea that what we have in the material, we've got huge manuscript evidence for the content of the material, we've got uh, all kinds of uh, uh, of of risk that these people took for what they believed to be true that wouldn't be that they wouldn't do if it was just made up so um so i think there are lots of reasons to think that the bible uh, is is trustworthy where we can check it against the background of the things that it describes and that kind of thing it it for the most part comes out pretty well i mean there's things that are debated and discussed but generally speaking the recognition is is that uh, we've got a pretty good insight into what was going on in the first century through what the scriptures tell us absolutely if you're just tuning in you're listening to the god solution on kdur 91.9 and 93.9 fm in durango and kdur.org online Thank you so much for listening to The God Solution this morning. So several years back, and of course this is going back a ways, but it's good to address it because it's still kind of commonly held in popular belief. I think a lot of the things that were in the Da Vinci Code, which of course was fiction, it's obvious fiction, but many have taken it as historical fact. I was recently talking with a few relatives, and one of them, who is a Catholic, he had recently seen the movie, and he asked just, out of the blue, isn't it true that we can't trust the Bible because all the New Testament books and the divinity of Christ were just a result of a vote in the early church councils? Why is this wrong? Well, main reason it's wrong is because it's wrong. I mean, it's <laughs> not even close. Um, the you know the councils that we're talking about took place in the fourth century, um, and Dan Brown, you know, uh, accredited the Nicene council for dealing with this well in fact the nicene council didn't deal with this at all it dealt with christology the councils that we're talking about that name the books of the new testament uh basically were held at the end of the fourth century and the beginning of the fifth century but long before that 
uh, long before there were any church councils, long before there was Constantine's recognition of Christianity. The bulk of the New Testament was being recognized and circulated as scripture in the end of the second century. We're talking 200 years earlier. Uh, Irenaeus wrote about the scriptures that were being used in the churches, and he was talking about the four Gospels, Acts, the Pauline epistles, First Peter and First John, fully, you know, probably 80% of our New Testament. And and so uh, what was what was resolved between the end of the second century and the end of the fourth century were books like Second uh, John, Third John, Revelation, a few books that ended up falling into what we call the period of the Apostolic Fathers, like First Clement, the Shepherd of Hermas, that kind of thing. But the bulk of the New Testament was in place and functioning in the early church, clearly by the end of the second century, and in a period before there was any official recognition, any power politics going on within the Christian movement in relationship to the larger society. Now, what about the divinity of Christ, which was discussed at Nicaea? Dan Brown, again in his novel, says that it was the result of a vote and, quote, a relatively close vote at that. Is that correct? Now, again, what you're dealing with here is uh, I did a book called The Missing Gospels in which I went through and traced uh, the theology of the early church in what were, what are generally recognized to be orthodox works to show how consistent the theology was and the portrayal of Jesus in this period uh, in these writings, uh, going from really from the New Testament writings all the way through up to Irenaeus because the per- people who have the theory that Dan Brown is putting forward basically say Irenaeus is responsible for the beginning of the founding of orthodoxy. He's kind of the father of orthodoxy. Before then, you got all kinds of things going on in all kinds of directions. And so I was um, arguing that that wasn't the case, that there was a consistent theology that was being taught and presented in the first and second centuries with, with core themes that were shared across all those writings. And then you did have, particularly in the beginning of the second century with the rise of Christian Gnosticism, alternative expressions using the name of Christ arising, but they were all over the map in terms of what they were doing. And there was no coherence uh, to what it was that they were teaching other than this syncretistic um, uh, combination with Greek philosophy that said that uh, matter was evil and only the spirit world was good, so creation was flawed from the beginning, that kind of thing. Things that co- uh, Christianity coming out of Judaism would not hold. And so um, uh, the, the point is is that there w- that all this predates anything going on at Nicaea. The uh, elevation of Jesus Christ, the worship of Jesus Christ is well established in the first century and in the second century by the way Paul uses scripture, by the hymnic material that we have in the New Testament. So what you get in the creeds is simply uh, spelling out that doctrine in very technical, precise Greek philosophical language, which did take some time to work out in terms of how they articulated who Jesus was, what the Trinity was about, that kind of thing. That's what's going on in the uh, in the uh, in the doctrinal councils and in the church councils, not the establishment that Jesus is divine. I have a question for you, and I know there was some speculation about this last year too. Was Jesus married, as the novel claims? Absolutely not. We have no evidence whatsoever that Jesus was married, uh, and. Any speculation that 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 took place is built around traditions that are centuries removed from the time of Jesus. Uh, I, I love to tell this story. Uh, when the Da Vinci Code came out, and this 
issue was raised, um, beliefnet.com asked Don, Do- John Dominic Crossan and myself to write an article on whether or not Jesus was married. Now, uh, Dom Crossan is a theological liberal uh, and is completely on the other end of the spectrum than I am. And so we both submitted our pieces and we both argued that Jesus wasn't married. In fact, um, uh, Carson used the illustration of, you know, if it walks like a duck, it quacks like a duck, it is a duck. And his point is is that all the evidence that we have indicates that Jesus was single. We don't have any trace of good, solid, ancient evidence that Jesus was married. Uh, and so uh, and so what I like to tell people is when you can get the people across the spectrum, liberal and conservative, to agree on something about the historical Jesus, you've actually achieved something. And uh, and that is suggestive that uh, um, th- that people across the spectrum agree that Jesus uh, wasn't married. I was wondering, is there anything else that you would like to share with those who have read the novels and that ha- might have mistaken it for history? Well, I think the main thing is uh, to, is to just note that that the way in which the early Christianity is portrayed in, in these materials ignores uh, a significant amount of evidence we have from the from the second century about how the doctrines of the church emerged, and that what you are getting is an attempt to explain in strictly human terms and basically out of sociological categories. Um, Something that has left uh, good, strong traces of of, um, of historical evidence uh, in, in the materials that we have, and it's just it's just not a very at the surface for someone who doesn't know the history, it sounds like it's a plausible theory, but when you actually compare it to what we know about the period and the writings of the period, it doesn't work at all. So I'm currently reading one of your most recent books, Truth in a Culture of Doubt, which you co-authored with Andreas Kostenberger and Josh Chatra. So far, it's been really great. I enjoy the humor at times and a lot of the insight, and I think you guys are doing a great job kind of dealing with Ehrman from kind of a big-picture perspective, which is really nice to see in one resource. So I'll be recommending that one for years to come. But thank you so much for, for contributing to this book. We've discussed Ehrman's work often on this show, and I've interviewed numerous other scholars on some of his books. Let's revisit that again, though, just because he's such a well-read or um, popular skeptic and critic of the New Testament. Does Ehrman really represent mainstream New Testament scholarship? I know you deal with that question in the book. Yeah, I think, I mean, if you look at how um, classes in early Christianity are being taught in university settings. Um, and you realize that Ehrman has written probably the best-selling introduction to the New Testament textbook for those kinds of classes, then yes, he really is representative of the kinds of things that certainly a large swath of, of uh, New Testament uh, people are saying uh, about the new t- uh, are saying about the New Testament about early Christian history. Um, he is representative. You know, he will say, I'm not really saying anything new. Basically, he's a packager in terms of the information of what's out there. And that's true. He is very representative of what it is that's being taught uh, in, in the classroom in many university settings. 
All right. And now, on that note, do you think that it is the only voice in New Testament scholarship? So I know that there are a lot of prominent New Testament scholars and historians like yourself, like Daniel Wallace, like, gosh, so many others. We interviewed four of the five authors authors of How God Became Jesus. And so there are so many that are responding to Ehrman. So is his the only valid scholarship on this topic? No, not at all. And that's part of the reason we wrote the book is that there is a half of the story that you're not getting from Ehrman. Uh, there are... Uh, elements and factors and, and details to be discussed that he doesn't raise. And so we wanted to make sure that people had the whole story when they walk into these conversations on these various topics because uh, because of the really um, uh, partial way in which Airman goes at these uh, topics. Definitely, if somebody is being required to read Ehrman, they need to pick up Truth and a Culture of Doubt. Well, I hope you enjoyed the interview with Dr. Daryl Bach. Again, this was just the first out of three parts that will be airing. The next two weeks, you can pick up the second and third parts of the interview with Dr. Daryl Bach. So please keep listening to The God Solution. You'll be hearing the rest of the interview. You can also get this interview at godsolutionshow.com, along with all of our other episodes. So it was a great show, and I hope you really enjoyed what he had to say. We really can trust that the portrait we have of Christ in the Gospels is legitimate. We know that what we believe is true, not because we feel it, not because we just want it to be so, but because it really is. History confirms the evangelical account of Jesus, and we can know with confidence that we're not just following an idea or a nice story or something like a fairy tale, but we're actually following the truth. In fact, Jesus said he was the way, the truth, and the life. The only way, the only truth, and the only life. See, when we follow Jesus, we're actually following the truth, not just a theory. And that's what I want to ask you to do this morning. It's great that there's all this evidence for Jesus Christ. It's great that there's all this evidence for what he said and did and the promises that he made to each of us, including the promise he made to you. But we have to go beyond that and actually take him up on his word. That involves putting our faith and our trust in him. See, if I don't trust somebody when they tell me something, I can't claim to be following them or even to be befriending them. Trust is integral to relationships. So how can you trust Christ this morning? Well, Jesus said that God loves this whole world, and that includes you. And he says that God loved the world so much that he gave his only son, Jesus himself, to die for your sins so that whoever believes in him won't perish but have everlasting life. Now, this is the truth that all the evidence supports. God loves you with an everlasting love. You're not just a face in the crowd, but you're a person that God loves dearly, and he desires to have a relationship with you. There's a big problem, though. You and I and even Dr. Buck are sinful human beings, and our sin and selfishness separates us from a perfect, loving God. Left unmitigated, we would be separated for all eternity from God in what the Bible calls hell. That's horrible news, and thankfully it doesn't end there. The reality is that God became a man, Jesus Christ, God in human flesh. He lived a perfect life that I could never live, and he died the death that each of us deserved. He paid for my sins on that cross, and he nailed them to the cross, Scripture says, so that I could have a relationship with God 
not based on my sinlessness, but based on Christ's sinlessness, based on Christ's performance, not mine. So I ask you today to take him at his word and put your faith in him. You can do that verbally expressing your faith in him, verbally confessing him as Savior and Lord right now through prayer, saying, Jesus, I believe that you are who you say you are and that you died on the cross for my sins and rose again to give me new life. Please come into my life. Please be my Savior and my Lord. Thank you. The Bible says that if you've genuinely put your faith and trust in him, confessing him as Savior and Lord and believing that he rose from the dead, that you will be saved. And if you did that this morning, you've been adopted into his family and you can look forward to a lifetime of relationship with him here on this planet and an eternity with him in heaven. Please go to GodSolutionShow.com to get this week's episode and all of our past shows. And also while you're there, check out the Churches tab and find a local church that you could visit this morning. It would be a great next step in your walk with God. Additionally, we'll be meeting at Noble Hall 125 at 6 p.m. on Tuesday. There will be snacks and food and lots of fun and a great message from God's Word. It'll be another great way for you to grow in your faith as a student. Again, that is Noble 125 this Tuesday at 6 p.m. Well, like I always say, an open mind, honest heart, humble disposition, and diligent search always lead to Jesus. I know that is the case. Please tune in next week for the second part of our interview with Dr. Bach and have a wonderful Sunday afternoon.